Don't know how many of you thought about it this morning, sitting here. Now, we could be together this morning for a very different reason than a normal worship service. Something happened to me this week. It's been good for me. Something happened to a lot of us. Something happened to Silas. But I realized this week that we love each other. And that we're a body. Maybe we didn't love each other like we should have this week. But the, the scriptures likens the, the church to the body of Christ. And it says when one member suffers, all the members suffer. We've got a painful member, member this week. I don't know if you want to call it a cracked rib, a sprained ankle, but it's affected all of us. Good morning to each one. God bless you for being here and welcome our visitors. How are we this morning? I don't know what I should share this morning. The Lord laid something on my heart, so I think I do know what to share. Uh, interesting, um, last Sunday morning, those of you that were here know that Floyd was supposed to preach, and he didn't come till just before the message because he wasn't feeling well. And he had gotten up. Uh, well, I woke up Sunday morning, and he had sent Joey and I a message and said he's not sure he's going to make it to church. And if any of us have anything to share, we, uh, you know, asked if, we, if any of us do. And so I got up, and I, my thoughts went to a message I'd preached in another congregation. And I went, got up, and I, I looked at it, and I was prepared to to preach that message if need be, but then he said he thinks he can come. And uh, then this week has been like it's been, and I think I still need to preach that message. I think God held it off a week for a reason, maybe. But I don't know if we need this message. I think I need it, and in a way, I feel like I'm going to be saying some things that I've been saying for a year. I've been saying for over time, uh, I've used parts of this, some of these same scriptures, and I hope I'm not just on a hobby horse. But it's things that have been very real to me in the past year or so. Turn with me to Luke chapter 7 for an opening scripture, a very precious story. Luke chapter 7. I'm going to read verses 36 to 50. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. Interesting story here. Why don't we just all stand to our feet as we read? Keep us from going to sleep. Out of respect for the word. One of, uh, Luke 7, verse 36. And one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. And behold, a woman in the city, what did it say about her, which was a sinner? says it outright. 
that when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment, and stood at his feet behind him weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears, and he wiped them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee, which had bidden him, saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who, this, who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he saith, Master, say on. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed him five hundred pence and the other fifty. When he had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into this thine house. Thou gavest me no water for my feet, but she hath washed my feet with tears, wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss. But this woman, since the time I came in, in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil, thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, he acknowledges that, are forgiven. For she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. He said unto her, thy sins are forgiven. And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? And he saith to the woman, Thy faith hath saved thee. Go in peace. You can be seated. Thank you. How much do you love? Jesus put it out there. He said, This woman, yeah, she had a lot of sins, but she loved me much. She worshiped. The title that I have for the message is The Worship, The Worship of Faithful Obedient Service. And we talk about worship, and I've talked about worship for years. And what is worship? What does it mean to worship? There are different definitions. We say it is to stand in awe of God. Well, what does it mean to stand in awe of God? We go down here to the Praise and Worship Center this morning. They're probably they're having worship, probably, and then they're having a preaching service, what they would call it. And that's worshiping. And when they say worship, they basically mean they're standing up and singing. And that's that's worshiping. Sure it is. Let's never forget that. Singing is not just something we do while everybody, get, all the latecomers straggle in. Worshiping. But worship is much more than just that. That's, that's the very important part. What does it mean to Worship. One definition of the Greek word that's most often translated as worship is, the definition is to kiss. And it gives the idea of a dog licking his master's hand. You know how a dog comes up and he licks your hand. He is subservient to you. also means to fawn or crouch to, to prostrate oneself, fall on your face, do reverence to, 
adore, worship, some of the words that were translated as worship. I'm sorry, that were the same Greek word, they translated adore, reverence, some of those things. To kiss like a dog licking his master's hand. What did this woman do that we just read about when she came to Jesus? She was crying. There was tears. And they wiped them. In verse 38, stood at his feet behind him, weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears. And it wiped them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. She realized she was a sinner. She worshiped. She didn't just stand in the back and mentally assent to a worship with Jesus. She did something. And that's what we want to focus on this morning. And worship is, like I said, it, it is that. It is praying to God. God, I give you the honor. I give you the glory. You are my Lord. You're my master. That's all. That is worship. Praising God. That's worship. But there's more to it. There's more ways to worship. The worship of faithful, obedient service. We want a big dramatic call to God. You know, Elijah, I'm sorry, I mean Moses, was out in the, in the desert and he saw a burning bush. The, bur- the bush was on fire, but it wasn't burning up. And he went over to check it out. A voice came out of the bush and said, Moses, take off your shoes for the place you're standing is holy ground. There was no doubt in Moses' mind that he was called to lead the children of Israel. Elijah, he was out plowing the yoke of oxen. And he was called. And he said he just left him and, and went. And then he said, well, what, what, what are you doing? He said, well, you, I've been called. Peter and Andrew, they were out fishing. Jesus came by and said, follow me. And they just left their boat and their nets, followed Jesus. And maybe we're called that way sometimes. But often... It's just by doing what we know is right from day to day. Just by serving others. And in so doing, we serve Christ. Yes, Jesus isn't physically here that we can wash his feet. We can wash each other's feet. Yes, we can. Often we are called to quietly lay down our lives for the brethren. The barn raisings, the cam projects, the quiltings. Worshiping God. If it's done in that spirit. Working at your job. Being a witness by word and deed. The power of God. Letting the power of God work. Not getting in the way of God. 1 Samuel 15, a couple verses there. And Samuel said, At the Lord is great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices and in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. To obey is better than sacrifice. Even in the Old Testament, all the laws that God told them to do, 
told him to sacrifice. And here God had told, told him, don't go. This is the context where he went. He was supposed to go and he was supposed to kill everybody in that one city, and he didn't do it. He brought the animals back and claimed he brought them back to sacrifice. He didn't obey God. He didn't worship. We could go to Isaiah chapter 1. Same thing. God is telling them. I don't think we're going to go there. God tells them, your heart is far from me. You're going through the motions, but you don't love me. You're doing the sacrifices I told you to do, but your heart is far from me. That wasn't good enough. That wasn't true worship. We do our best service. We do our best worship sometimes, if, you, if there's better worship than others. <laughs> when we don't even realize we're doing it. Think about it. I'll give you some examples. Matthew chapter 25. We could go several different ways there. I don't know how much time to take here. Let's just turn there and read some of that. Trust it's familiar scripture in Matthew 25. Starts out with the uh, parable of the ten virgins, and they took their five were wise and five were foolish. Five worshipped, five didn't. Five cared, that's the point. Five didn't care. Do we care this morning? Five were faithful, five were unfaithful. They weren't expressly told. And, and we might say, well, they, nobody ever told them to fill their, fill their uh, lamps with oil. But they should have known. They would have cared, they would have. Do you care about what God, do you care enough to be prepared to worship? Is your tank full? And yes, sometimes it's empty, and that's okay too, I think. Sometimes we need to be ministered unto. I get that. Do we fill our, fill, our, fill our oil from day to day? Fill our lamps so we can shine. I think we're going to read uh, the next parable uh, starting in uh, verse 14 of Matthew 25. For the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. And unto one he gave five talents, and to another two, and to another one, to every man according as his several ability, and straightway took his journey. Then he that had received the five talents went and traded with the same, and made them other five talents. Likewise, he that had received two, he also gained other two. Then he that had received one went and digged in the earth, and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants cometh, and reckoneth with them, and so he that had received five talents came and bought, brought other five talents, saying, Lord, thou deliverest unto me five talents. Behold, I have gained beside them five talents more. His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. He also that had received two talents came and said, Lord, thou deliverest unto me two talents. Behold, I have gained two other talents beside them. His Lord said unto him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. Thou will make thee ruler over many things. 
Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Then he which had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew thee that thou art an hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown, and gathering where thou hast not strawed. And I was afraid, and went and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo, there thou hast, that is thine. His Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, thou knewest that I reap where I sow not, and gather where I have not strawed. Thou oughtest therefore to have put my money to the exchangers, and then at my coming I should have received mine own with usury. Take therefore the talent from him, and give it unto him which hath ten talents. And unto every one that hath, shall, for unto every one that hath, shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But from him that hath not shall be taken away, even that which he hath. And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What a sobering account. So he gave the one man five talents, gave the other two, gave the other one. He gave them all some responsibility, right? But it was different degrees. He gave them what he thought they could handle, right? I think that's how God does. He gives some of us more responsibility than others. Some of us can't take a whole lot. But we can all handle a little. We're supposed to handle a little. So the one man, he had five talents, and he gained another five. The other, he gained two. He doubled his as well. Did good. He, did, he didn't look at it. They got no different reward, right? Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Wanted gained five, wanted gained two. Didn't make a difference. You know what made a difference? The one, he just gave him a little bit of responsibility. He didn't do anything with it. He said if you would have at least put it in the bank and made a tiny little bit of it, he wouldn't have even had to gain another talent. Just a little bit of effort. Just a little bit of worship. Can we do a little bit? And you'll see where I'm going with this maybe in a little bit. But my point is, let me go there now, I guess. <clears throat> I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like I can't do much. I feel like I look at other people and it looks like they can do so much for the Lord. And I'm just, I just don't have it together. I think I'm trying my best with what I've got, but I just don't, I can't get much done. I don't think that matters to God. We're going to look at a story a little bit later that's been a great comfort to me in the past year for some of those reasons. But am I being faithful? That's what I want to ask us this morning. Are you being faithful? Are you worshiping God by faithfully obeying and doing what he has put in front of you this morning? Matthew chapter 25, it goes on, and I don't think we're going to read that either. That's a very familiar scripture, at least to the church here. I've read it a lot the last couple of years. It's the, the account of the, the, uh, where he comes and he says, well, back up. We need to read it because it, it pertains to 
We need to refresh our mind because it pertains to the story I want to get into later. Just remind ourselves, we've got time. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man shall come in His glory, and all the holy angels with Him, then shall He sit upon the throne of His glory, and before Him shall be gathered all nations. And He shall separate them one from another, as the shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And He shall set the sheep on His right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom, prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was in hunger, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in, naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered, and fed thee, or thirsty, and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick, or in prison, and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungered, and ye gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me not in. Naked, and ye clothed me not. Sick, and in prison, and ye visited me not. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee in hunger, or a thirst, or a stranger, or naked? or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee. Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as you did it not to one of the least of these, you did it not to me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Now remember what I said earlier, that some of our, maybe some of our best worship is done when we don't even realize we're worshiping. And that's what happened here. He said, Lord, we, we didn't do that to you. We weren't worshiping. But God saw it as worship. You did it to me. It was serving me. Are you being faithful in serving God? There's another account. In the very next chapter, Matthew chapter 26. Verse 6, Now when Jesus was in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, there came unto him a woman, having an alabaster box of very precious ointment, and poured it on his head as he sat at meat. But when his disciples saw it, they had indignation, saying, To what purpose is this waste? For the ointment might have been sold for much, given to the poor. When Jesus understood it, he said unto them, Why trouble you the woman? For she hath wrought a good work upon me. For ye have the poor always with you, but me ye have not always. For in that she hath poured the ointment on my body, she did it for my burial. Early I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached in the whole world, there shall also this, as woman hath done, be told for a memorial of her. Again, a woman that never in her wildest dreams would have imagined that we would be talking about her 2,000 years later. She came and did something precious for the Lord that she loved. She worshipped. No amount of money is too much to spend on on. Christ and his kingdom. That's the first thing they thought about. But it was Judas. It's wasteful. Well, I guess maybe it doesn't say, I thought it said it was Judas, maybe not. It says it in one of the other gospels, I think, maybe. Hey, we could have sold that and given it to the poor. Said, this woman loves me. People around them looked down on her for it. It was unpopular. 
Sometimes serving God and worshiping God is unpopular to those around us. Even to those that shouldn't be unpopular to. And it hurts. They don't understand. Those who, who, are, who are serving God, we would say, and they don't understand what we need to do sometimes. It's not the status quo. Another man I want to, I want to bring out in this is, is the Apostle Andrew. First uh, John chapter 1, verse 40 and 41 talks about John a little bit. It says, One of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother Simon and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. First evangelist, you might say. And when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. I love the Apostle Andrew. You don't read a lot about him, you do some, more than you think. Start looking at it. But he was always there. He was the one, I think, that brought the little boy with the five loaves and two fishes to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, you can do something with this. He believed that Jesus could feed the 5,000 with that. You know, most of, most of us would have been like, well, that doesn't even matter. I mean, but why did he bring him to Jesus? Because I think he knew what he could do. You don't, he, wasn't, he wasn't in the forefront. You know, you have Peter, James, and John were with Jesus a lot. But he brought Peter. He was there first. He could have been jealous. Well, yeah, Jesus, you know, I was here before Peter was. Why are you kind of letting him be the leader here? But it seems that he knew that Simon had potential. Peter. Simon Peter. Let's be like, let's be like Andrew. We don't have to be in the forefront, but we're just faithfully doing what we know is best. The Apostle Paul himself in 1 Corinthians 15 says, For I am the least of the apostles. You might say, Well, Paul wrote half the New Testament. What's he trying to say? He says, That I'm not meet to be called an apostle. He says, I shouldn't even be called an apostle because I have persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly, abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. If the Apostle Paul could say that he wasn't worthy, then who are we? He says, I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, with the grace of God which was with me. He admitted he had done a lot, but on the other hand, he said, I'd persecuted the church. Where are we at this morning? How is your worship? Not to belabor a story, but back in uh, Christmas of last year, so it was almost a year ago, I had preached a message and I used a story of the other wise man. Some of you probably remember that, that we're here. I want to go through that story again, and I hope it doesn't, that that's not boring for you. I want to go a little bit deeper in detail than I did that time. This is the story I was talking about. This is not scripture. But this story, I don't know how often I've read and listened to this story in the past year. It, it has done something for me. Maybe you'll understand. Maybe you won't. It's okay. But it means a lot to me. This is an old book. It's 100 years old. It was given to somebody for Christmas in 1924. 
And I think the copyright is in, uh, I think it was 1923, if I remember right. See it right now, but anyway. We know it was at least around in 1924. <clears throat> it's a very, very old book. It's the story of the other wise man by Henry Van Dyke. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. I know some of you have because I shared it before here. We know in, in Matthew chapter 2, read about there was wise men from the east. doesn't say how many. doesn't say there was three. Um, this man also assumes there was three. So there's problems with the story. But that's not the point. Look at the message of the story, not the, not the details. This, I don't think this man actually existed, but he could have. Book starts out with uh, the, the main character of the story is a man named Artaban. And he's in his home country with his fellow astrologers. And he's discussing the fact that a star has been seen in the spring. Him and his companions had studied the writings of Daniel and thought that this year would be the one. And according to his calculations, tonight would be the night that he would see the sign again. And his three friends, they were watching from a different place. And they had agreed that if the star shines again that night, that they would wait for him for ten days to catch up to them before they would cross the desert and to go out to Jerusalem to worship the king. The promised one. He believed so firmly that the sign would come that he sold his house, his possessions, and he bought a sapphire, he bought a ruby, and he bought a pearl to carry as gifts to the king. The ones that he was with at the time, were they were doubtful. They said they couldn't go. One of them said he had to couldn't go because of his work. Another said he had a new bride. Another said he was ill and unfit for hardships. But they blessed him in going. This gives a scene. They're around a fire and they're discussing these things. Nardaban is there with them. It says one by one they left except the oldest and the one who loved Nardaban the best. This is what he told him. I'm going to read, read out of the book a little bit. So this is what the old wise man said who was too old to go across the desert. My son, it may be that the light of truth is in this sign that has appeared in the skies, and then it will, and then it will surely lead to the prince and the mighty brightness. Or it may be that it is only a shadow of the light, as Tigranus has said, and then he who follows it will have only a long pilgrimage and an empty search. But it is better to follow even the shadow of the best than to remain content with the worst. And those who would see wonderful things must often be ready to travel alone. I am too old for this journey, but my heart shall be a companion of the pilgrimage day and night, and I shall know the end of thy quest. Go in peace. So one by one they went out of the azure chamber with its silver stars, and Artaban was left in solitude. He gathered up the jewels and replaced them, placed them in his girdle. For a long time he stood and watched the flame that flickered and sank upon the altar. Then he crossed the hall, lifted the heavy curtain, and passed out between the dull red pillars of 
porphyry to the terrace on the roof. The shiver that thrills through the earth ere she rouses from her night's sleep had already begun, and the cool wind that heralds the daybreak was drawing downward from the lofty snow-traced ravines of Mount Orontes. Birds half-awakened crept and chirped among the rustling leaves, and the smell of ripened grapes came in brief wafts from the arbors. Far over the eastern plain a white mist searched, stretched like a lake, but where the distant peak of Zagros serrated the western horizon, the sky was clear. Jupiter and Saturn rolled together like drops of lambent flame about to blend in one. As Artaban watched them, behold, an azure spark was born out of the darkness beneath, rounding itself with purple splendors to a crimson sphere and spiring upward through the rays of saffron and orange into a point of white radiance, tiny and infinitely remote, yet perfect in every part. It pulsated in the enormous vault as, it, as if the three jewels in the Magian's breast, if I can say this, had mingled and been transformed into a living heart of light. He bowed his head, he covered his brow with his hands. It is the sign, he said, the king is coming and I will go to meet him. And so he had uh, made up his mind to go. The sign had come. He had his fastest horse saddled and bridled and ready all night as he was watching for the sign. As soon as he saw the star, he jumped on and he headed out, knowing he would have to ride hard for the next ten days to meet his three companions before they started across the desert. At nightfall on the tenth day, weary and worn out, he approached Babylon and was tempted to stop, but he knew that he had another three hours of riding to get to the meeting place where he would have to get, and he would have to get there by midnight or his friends would leave without him. He's riding along. He's still, he's getting tired. And he comes across, it's dark now. He's got till midnight. And he finds a man laying in the roadway. Probably one of the poor Hebrew exiles who still lived around Babylon. He thought he was dead and he was about to move on when the man moved and he grabbed his robe. And he says, Artaban's heart leaped to his throat. Listen to this. Not with fear, but with dumb resentment at the importunity of this blind delay. How many of you can relate to that? I can. Sometimes our heart sinks because we know we have to do something with this. <laughs> Why did he reach out to me? Now I've got to do something. And in a way, his heart wasn't in it, but yet it was. He obeyed, right? He thought, he thought about leaving him there, but he just didn't feel right. Yeah, He was going to see the king. He had more important things to do. And it says the, the Magi, they were also physicians. And so he had things with him. And he stayed and he helped the man hour after hour. The man finally woke up and asked Artaban who he was. He told him. And he told him his mission. The man was a Jew. And he prayed a blessing over his journey. And told him the prophets have said that he would be born in Bethlehem, not Jerusalem. Hmm. He got him where he thought he was be okay, and he, he, he started on. It was now long past midnight. He arrives as the first beams of the sun come over the horizon. I'll read another couple pages here. As he rides up, you can see the desperation. Artaban rode swiftly around the hill. He dismounted and climbed to the highest terrace, looking out toward the west. The huge desolation of the marshes stretched away to the horizon and the border of the desert. Bitterns stood by the stagnant pools and jackals skulked through the low bushes, but there was no sign of the caravan of the wise men far or near. At the edge of the terrace, he saw a little cairn of broken bricks and under them a piece of parchment. He caught it up and read, We have waited past the midnight. We can delay no longer. We go to find the king. Follow us across the desert. 
Artaban sat down upon the ground and covered his head in despair. How can I cross the desert, said he, with no food and with a spent horse? I must return to Babylon, sell my sapphire, and buy a train of camels and provision for the journey. I may never overcome my, take my friends. Only God the merciful knows whether I shall not lose the sight of the king because I tarried to show mercy. So he thought about it. Only God knows if I'm going I'm to miss the king because I, I showed a man mercy. And the man writes this, this book as if, as if he, say, he says it was a vision that he had one night. He says in the vision, he saw him journey along the route. He mentions several different places and he finally arrives in Bethlehem. Three days after the other wise men had been there and given their gifts to the king. The streets seemed deserted as he arrives in Bethlehem. He went to Bethlehem, not just to Jerusalem, because of what the man had told him. The streets seemed deserted, but he hears a woman in the one house. So he enters, and he found her and her baby boy. But notice, don't forget, now he sold his, he had three gifts, and he had to sell a sapphire. Now he just has two to the king. He entered this house, and he found her and her baby boy. She tells him there's a rumor the Romans are coming to impose a new tax, and the men have driven the flocks up into the mountains to hide them. She told him about the strangers who had been there three days before and had, and had said a star guided them to the place where Joseph and Mary and the babe were. She told him they had disappeared again the same night. Joseph and Mary had left as well. Rumor had it they were going to Egypt. So he missed them. Missed Jesus. He played with the baby a bit. The woman cooked him a meal and put the baby to sleep. Suddenly he heard a bunch of noise and confusion. People yelling that the soldiers are killing our children. The mother grabs her baby and hides him the best she can while Artaban stood in the doorway of this house. Soldiers came down the street with bloody hands and dripping swords. The captain of the band came to thrust him aside, but Artaban didn't move. Remember, he was standing in the doorway. He didn't move. Let me read a little bit more. The soldiers came hurrying down the street with bloody hands and dripping swords. At the sight of the stranger in his imposing dress, they hesitated with surprise. The captain of the band approached the threshold to thrust him aside, but Artaban did not stir. His face was as calm as though he were watching the stars, and in his eyes there burned that steady radiance for which even the half-tamed hunting leopard shrinks and the fierce bloodhound pauses in his leap. He held the soldier silently for an instant and then said in a low voice, I am all alone in this place and I am waiting to give this jewel to the prudent captain who will leave me in peace. He showed the ruby glistening in the hollow of his hand like a great drop of blood. The captain was amazed at the splendor of the gem. The pupils of his eyes expanded with desire and the hard lines of greed wrinkled around his lips. He stretched out his hand and took the ruby. March on, he cried to his men. There is no child here. The house is still. The clamor and the clang of arms pass down the street as the headlong fury of the chase sweeps by the secret covert where the trembling deer is hidden. Artaban re-entered the cottage. He turned his face to the east and prayed, God of truth, forgive my sin. I have said the thing that is not to save the life of a child. And two of my gifts are gone. I have spent for man that which was meant for God. Shall I ever be worthy to see the face of the king? But the voice of the woman, weeping for joy in the shadow behind him, said very gently, Because thou hast saved the life of my little one, may the Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. So now he only had one gift left. He saved the life of a child. Again, we don't, this, 
not in the Bible, just a story, okay? In the vision, it says you saw him briefly over the years, here and there, in Egypt, consulting with the rabbis that are in some city looking for the king. Artaban was looking for years, looking for the king, traveling all over. So I saw the other wise man again and again, traveling from place to place and searching among the people of the dispersion with whom the little family from Bethlehem might perhaps have found a refuge. He passed through countries where famine lay heavy upon the land and the poor were crying for bread. He made his dwelling in plague-stricken cities where the sick were languishing in the bitter companionship of helpless misery. He visited the oppressed and the afflicted in the gloom of subterranean prisons and the crowded, crowded wretchedness of slave markets and the weary toil of galley ships. In all this populous and intricate world of anguish, though he found none to worship, get this, he found many to help. Though he found none to worship, he found many to help. He fed the hungry, and clothed the naked, and healed the sick, and comforted the captive, and his years went by more swiftly than the weaver's shuttle that flashes back and forth through the loom, while the web grows and the invisible pattern is completed. It seemed almost as if he had forgotten his quest. But once I saw him for a moment as he stood alone at sunrise, waiting at the gate of a Roman prison. He had taken from a secret resting place in his bosom the pearl, the last of his jewels. As he looked at it, a mellower luster, a soft and iridescent light, full of shifting gleams of azure and rose, trembled upon its surface. It seemed to have absorbed some reflection of the colors of the lost sapphire and ruby. So the profound secret purpose of a noble life draws into itself the memories of past joy and past sorrow. All that has helped it, all that has hindered it, is transfused by a subtle magic into its very essence. It becomes more luminous and precious the longer it is carried close to the warmth of the beating heart. Then at last, while I was thinking of this pearl and of its meaning, I heard the end of the story of the other wise man. And I'm going to read to you the last chapter. <clears throat> Three and thirty years remember the number, of the life of Artaban had passed away. He was still a pilgrim, a seeker after light. His hair, once darker than the cliffs of Zagros, was now white as the wintry snow that covered them. His eyes, that once flashed like flames of fire, were dull as embers smoldering among the ashes, worn and weary and ready to die, but still looking for the king. He had come for the last time to Jerusalem, he had often visited the holy city before and had searched through all its lanes and crowded hovels and black prisons without finding any trace of the family of Nazarenes who had fled from Bethlehem long ago. But now it seemed as if he must make one more effort and something whispered in his heart that at last he might succeed. It was the season of the Passover. The city was thronged with strangers. The children of Israel scattered in far lands all over the world had returned to the temple for the great feast. And there had been a confusion of tongues in the narrow streets for many days. But on this day, there was a singular agitation visible in the multitude. The sky was veiled with a portentous gloom, and currents of excitement seemed to flash through the crowd like the thrill which shakes the forest on the eve of a storm. A secret tide was sweeping them all one way. The clatter of sandals and the soft, thick sound of thousands of bare feet shuffling over the stones flowed unceasingly along the street that leads to the Damascus Gate. Artaban joined company with a group of people from his own country, Parthian Jews, who had come up to keep the Passover. 
and inquired of them the cause of the tumult and where they were going. We are going, they answered, to the place called Golgotha, outside the city walls, where there is to be an execution. Have you not heard what has happened? Two famous robbers are to be crucified, and with them another called Jesus of Nazareth, a man who has done many wonderful works among the people, so that they love him greatly. But the priests and elders have said that he must die, because he gave himself out to be the Son of God. And Pilate has sent him to the cross, because he said that he was the King of the Jews. How strangely the... Strangely, these familiar words fell upon the tired heart of Artaban. He had led him for a lifetime. They had led him over a lifetime, over land and sea, and now they had come to him. Now they came to him darkly and mysteriously, like a message of despair. The king had arisen, but he had been denied and cast out. He was about to perish. Perhaps he was already almost. I'm sorry. He was perhaps he was already dying. Could it be the same who had been born in Bethlehem 33 years ago? at whose birth the star had appeared in heaven, and of whose coming the prophets had spoken. Artaban's heart beat unsteadily with that troubled, doubtful apprehension which is the excitement of old age. But he said within himself, The ways of God are stranger than the thoughts of men. And it may be that I shall find the king at last in the hands of his enemies, and shall come in time to offer my pearl for his ransom before he dies. That's what he's thinking. Maybe I can still buy his freedom. So the old man followed the multitude with slow and painful steps toward the Damascus gate of the city. Just beyond the entrance of the guardhouse, a troop of Macedonian soldiers came down the street, dragging a young girl with torn dress and disheveled hair. As the Magian paused to look at her with compassion, she broke suddenly from the hands of her tormentors and threw herself at his feet, clasping him around the knees. She had seen his white cap and the winged circle on his breast. Have pity on me, she cried, and save me for the sake of the God of purity. I also am a daughter of the true religion which is taught by the Magi. My father was a merchant of Parthia. But he is dead, and I am seized for its debts to be sold as a slave. Save me from worse than death. So again, there was a person begging for her freedom. Artaban trembled. It was the old conflict in his soul which had come to him in the palm grove of Babylon. And in the cottage at Bethlehem, the conflict between the expectation of faith and the impulse of love. Twice the gift which he had consecrated to the worship of religion had been drawn from his hand to the service of humanity. That's quite the statement as well. This was the third trial, the ultimate probation, the final and the irrevocable choice. Was it his great opportunity or his last temptation? He could not tell. He didn't know what to do. He had a decision to make. One thing only was clear in the darkness of his mind. It was inevitable. And does not the inevitable come from God? One thing only was sure to, this, to his divided heart. To rescue this helpless girl would be a true deed of love. And is not love the light of the soul? He took the pearl from his bosom. Never had it seemed so luminous, so radiant, so full of tender, living luster. He laid it in the hand of the slave. This is thy ransom, daughter. It is the last of my treasures which I kept for the king. While he spoke, the darkness of the sky thickened, and shuddering tremors ran through the earth, heaving convulsively like the breast of one who struggles with mighty grief. The walls of the house rocked to and fro. Stones were loosened and crashed into the street. Dust clouds filled the air. The soldiers fled in terror, reeling with drunk, like drunken men. But Artaban and the girl whom he had ransomed crouched helpless, beneath the wall of the praetorium. 
What had he to fear? What had he to live for? He had given away the last remnant of his tribute for the king. He had parted with the last hope of finding him. The quest was over, and it had failed. Did it. But even in that thought, accepted and embraced, there was peace. It was not resignation. It was not submission. It was something more profound than searching. He knew that all was well. Notice this, because he had done the best that he could from day to day. He had been true to the light that had been given to him. He had looked for more, and if he had not found it, if a failure was all that came out of his life, doubtless that was the best that was possible. He had not seen the revelation of life everlasting, incorruptible and immortal, but he knew that even if he could live his earthly life over again, it could not be otherwise than it had been. He wouldn't have done anything different to what he's saying. He wouldn't have made any different choices. One more lingering pulsation of the earthquake quivered through the ground. A heavy tile shaken from the roof fell and struck the old man on the temple. He lay breathless and pale with his gray head resting on the young girl's shoulder and the blood trickling from the wound as she bent over him, fearing that he was dead. There came a voice through the twilight, very small and still, like music sounding from a distance in which the notes are clear, but the words are lost. The girl turned to see if someone had spoken from the window above them, but she saw no one. Then the old man's lips began to move, as if in answer, and she heard him say in the Parthian tongue, Not so, my lord. For when saw I thee and hungered, and fed thee, or thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw I thee a stranger and took thee in, or naked and clothed thee? When saw I thee sick or in prison and came unto thee? Three and thirty years have I looked for thee, but I have never seen thy face, nor ministered to thee, my king. He ceased, and the sweet voice came again. And again the maid heard it very faintly and far away. But now it seemed as though she understood the words. Verily I say unto thee, inasmuch as thou hast done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, thou hast done it unto me. A calm radiance of wonder and joy lighted the pale face of Artaban, while the first ray of dawn, like the first ray of dawn on a snowy mountain peak, one long last breath of relief exhaled gently from his lips. His journey was ended, his treasures were accepted. Excuse me. The other wise man had found the king. The other wise man had found the king. Sorry, I can't. <laughs> Often as I read that, I can't get through it. <clears throat> In the preface of the book, there's a phrase that says, there are some kinds of failure that are better than success. I think that's true. Artaban failed in his mission. He thought he did anyway. But it was better than success. If he would have found the king, he would have probably just went back home again. And maybe he could have done good things. I'm not saying that. I don't know if you caught the phrase. He says, twice the gift 
which he had consecrated to the worship of religion, had been drawn to the service of humanity. And in that way it was worship. It was still worship. He knew that all was well because he had done the best that he could from day to day. Is that how we're living our life? You know, sometimes it looks like a mess. Sometimes it just doesn't go right, does it? It doesn't in my house. But then sometimes I stop and think, and it's like, I don't know what I could do different. And that's what I take comfort in. I'm doing the best I can. And we look at other people, and we compare ourselves with other people. We're not supposed to do that, but we do. And they look like their lives are so put together. And they just everything goes well for them. And I've seen people like that. And it's never once failed that when I got to know them, that's not how it is. So we all struggle. Maybe some of us more than others. I'm not saying that. Let's not consider ourselves victims. Let's not consider ourselves worse off than everybody else. Artaban could have done that. He could have just wallowed in self-pity, sat down and just gave up, but he didn't. Kept looking. That's what we must do. Keep worshiping. Keep doing. Keep serving others. The worship of faithful, obedient service. So go home and worship. Go to work tomorrow and worship. Go visit the widows and worship. Feed the orphans and worship. Go worship by giving a child a cup of cold water. Come to church and worship with the brothers and sisters. But don't worship. Forget to worship all week. Revelation 22, verse 14. Blessed are they that do his commandments. Why? That they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates of the city. That's the reward for faithful, obedient worship. Obedient service. Right to the tree of life and to enter in through the gates into the city. I think I'll stop there. Let's... Kneel and pray.